Next, on the Ottoman History Podcast, we talk with David Gutman, author of the recently published book, The Politics of Armenian Migration to North America. We discuss the way the Ottoman state responded to Armenians leaving the Harput region in large numbers for places all around the world. Ottomans are fearing in the late 1880s that there's a direct connection between this emerging large-scale labor migration and the emergence of these Armenian political networks. And so in 1888, the palace of Sultan Abdul Hamid II issues an order saying that Armenian migration to North America is to be prevented at all costs. And we detail the ways that local people responded to increasing restrictions on mobility. Quite early on in the late 1880s and early 1890s, a sophisticated set of smuggling networks begins to emerge in the Harput region. The story is transnational, one that links events that we might not typically think of together. Kind of draw a parallel between the assassination of William McKinley in 1901 and the attempted assassination of Sultan Abdul Hamid II uh, in 1905. Many things changed with the Constitutional Revolution of 1908. It's now much safer to return uh, than it was before 1908. You don't have to worry about deportation if you're an Armenian returnee. But of course, the hopes attached to these changes would eventually be dashed in violent ways. 1915 marks a very, very grim ending point for the story of long-distance migration between the Harput region uh, and the United States as the family members, as returnees themselves, fall victim to this genocidal process. In closing, we recall one of the key intellectual influences on this book. You know, it owes a great deal to his patience, to his willingness to encourage his students to take risks, to take on topics that may seem to be politically uncomfortable. Stay with us. It's the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Sam Dolby. Today, our guest is David Gutman, who is an associate professor at Manhattanville College. His new book is called The Politics of Armenian Migration to North America. 1885 to 1915, Sojourners, Smugglers, and Dubious Citizens. And that's on Edinburgh University Press. David Gutman, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Your work is focused on Harput as the center of Armenian migration networks connecting to places far away, places like Worcester, Massachusetts, Providence, Rhode Island, Brantford, Ontario. Could you start by telling us about Harput its Armenian community, and why it was a place in the late 19th century that so many Armenians were leaving. So uh, Harput is in the kind of central eastern region of Anatolia, and it is in some ways a sort of unique place in that unlike Armenian and Kurdish populated areas further to the east, it comes under the direct control of the modernizing Ottoman state relatively early in the middle part of the 19th century. And so therefore, it's not part of this project that is underway in the later part of the 19th and early 20th centuries to settle Kurdish nomadic tribes often on uh, land expropriated from Armenian, Assyrian, and Kurdish peasants. Instead, it's um, relatively politically and economically integrated by the late part of the 19th century. And as a result, uh, as I argue in the book, the Armenian community there is more economically and politically integrated into the kind of regional economy uh, as well
well as into the broader Ottoman political system than their counterparts further east are. Uh, on top of that, there's also been a long-standing tradition of large-scale regional migration from the Harput region to places like Istanbul, to Aleppo, to Adana by the later part of the 19th century. And that's also a significant component of this migration story. So you have a relatively more politically and economically stable for Armenian communities than elsewhere in the Ottoman East. Uh, and then also in the middle part of the 19th century, the uh, American missionaries found Euphrates College. And that also becomes an important component of this story, too. This becomes one of the ways in which information about the United States, about places to go, these uh, missionaries are primarily from the New England area, from the American Northeast. And so therefore, it's not surprising that early on, many of these sojourners from the Harput region are ending up in the American Northeast in places like Boston and surrounding cities such as Lynn, Worcester, Providence. So it's sort of the convergence uh, of these dynamics in the later part of the 19th century that explain why it's the Harput region that becomes the epicenter of this large-scale migration to North America. And so this is kind of an interesting detail because sometimes we think of migration as something that only the poorest people do, only the most desperate people do. But what you're saying in a way, if I'm hearing it correctly, is that part of the reason why people are leaving is because it's a politically stable region in some ways. Right. Yeah. Comparatively speaking, I mean, again, in the in the mid-1890s, when there's a series of, uh, of massacres and anti-Armenian violence in the Ottoman East, uh, Harput is the stage for an urban pogrom that takes place in which uh, buildings of Euphrates College are burned. There's violence that takes place in the surrounding villages. But this is nothing compared to the kinds of violence that's taking place in areas like Sassoon, in which you have the devastation of entire villages. So I don't want to paint too rosy a picture, but at the same time, migration, especially long-distance migration is a risk. And this is, in this period, primarily young single men uh, or recently married men who are leaving on their own with the idea of either returning at some point or in the medium or long term, bringing over family to the United States with them. Uh, but that can be a process that takes several years. These are young men who are leaving families behind, leaving homes behind, again, with the idea of staying in very, very close contact with the region. That's A, not something that the very poorest of people can do. It's expensive to migrate long distance. And it's also uh, not something that people fearing immediate ruination uh, are also going to undertake, leaving behind vulnerable family members. Increasingly, the Ottoman state gets nervous about this amount of movement, and they're not necessarily afraid that people are leaving. They're afraid that people are going to come back. Right. So could you talk about what kinds of legal restrictions start to emerge and why the Ottoman state is concerned about these return migrants? I mean, migration begins in sort of trickles in the 1870s and 1880s. And largely the people that you're seeing leaving in that period are people who are affiliated with missionaries are often going to the United States to study at university, to start businesses. Uh, but beginning in the late 1880s, especially as steamship lines, European steamship lines begin uh, establishing themselves in earnest and secondary ports on the Black Sea and Mediterranean coasts, uh, like Samsun, Trabzon, Iskenderun, Mersin, it becomes increasingly possible for a different group of people to begin leaving. These are people who are intending to go abroad, not to study, not to necessarily open businesses, but to work in factories, to do wage work 
work, save money, either return, remit uh, money back home. Uh, this begins in earnest in the late 1880s. This is the exact same time that Armenian political organizations, such as the Hinchakian Revolutionary Party, which is founded in Geneva in 1887, and the Armenian Revolutionary Federation, or the Dashnaksutsyun, which is founded in Tbilisi in the Russian Caucasus in 1889, this large-scale migration is converging with the emergence of these Armenian political networks, uh, which are very, very early on transnational in scope. And what's surprising is that very quickly after these parties emerge, and in fact, before the uh, Armenian Revolutionary Federation, which by the late 1890s becomes the dominant Armenian political organization, both within the Ottoman Empire and outside, the Ottomans are fearing in the late 1880s that there's a direct connection between this emerging large-scale labor migration and the emergence of these Armenian political networks. The Ottoman state views this early on and throughout this period, at least until the 1908 uh, revolution, uh, as two sides of the same coin. And so in 1888, after about 30 uh, Armenian migrants seeking to travel to the United States are arrested and then deported back home to the Harput region from Istanbul, the Yildiz Palace, uh, the, the palace of Sultan Abdul Hamid II, issues in order saying that Armenian migration to North America is to be prevented at all costs, that Armenians with few exceptions uh, will be allowed to, to travel to North America and otherwise will be a full ban on that migration. And that will remain, that ban will remain in place uh, until 1908. David, I wonder if you could tell us about the circuit of migration. How do I get from a village outside of Harput perhaps to Worcester, Mass, in light of these legal restrictions on movement after 1888. So one of the um, central arguments of the book is that, as we see in the present day, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the process of migration and the experience of migration is heavily impacted and shaped by state power, and that the process of migrating from the Ottoman East to a place like Worcester, Massachusetts, is deeply impacted by this 1888 law officially banning most forms of Armenian migration to North America. And so, again, like in the present, if a migrant wants to leave and the state or states are trying to clamp down on that, then they migrate through illicit channels. Quite early on in the late 1880s and early 1890s, a sophisticated set of smuggling networks begins to emerge in the Harput region that links the region to various coastal cities on either the Black Sea uh, or Mediterranean Sea coasts. And so, if you're, say, somebody in 1892 seeking to travel to Worcester, Massachusetts. You would contract with uh, what I call a migration agent. I have a couple of examples of who these people were. Often wealthy merchants or bankers who are connected to a vast network of people, guides who are leading people from the interior to the coast. Uh, at this time in the late 19th, and early 20th centuries, there are no railway connections from the Ottoman East to the coast. In fact, what will become after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, Eastern Turkey isn't connected to a national uh, railway network until the 1930s. Uh, and so people are having to travel from the interior to the coast, whether it's the Black Sea or Mediterranean coast, often two to three weeks, depending on the weather. Uh, so it's a long, hard slog on foot, often led by experienced guides. When people arrive in port cities, uh, whether it's Mersin, Samsun, they are faced with a different network of actors, hoteliers who will keep people in their boarding houses often for 
weeks, even months at a time while travel arrangements are made. These hoteliers rely on the assistance of, of numerous actors, including ticket agents, consular staff, so staff of, of local consulates of, of European and other Western consulates, and then boatmen who, uh, when the after the arrangements are made and a, a group of migrants is ready to take off to, to actually board a ship, especially this is taking place on the Mediterranean coast, the best way to secretly load passengers, uh, illicit passengers on a ship is to do so outside of the sort of surveillance zone of the central ports. Uh, and so often migrants are led well outside of the cities of Mersin or Eskenderun to these empty stretches of beach, and then they are rowed out by boatmen. So once these Armenians make it from Harput to the coast, either at Iskenderun or Samsun or wherever, they go by way of the boatmen to steamships, then they go elsewhere. Are they going directly to the United States? Or are they going to some point in between? How does this trajectory work? Right. So usually from whatever port city they're leaving from the Ottoman Empire, they're going to end up at uh, a European transit port. So if they're going with the uh, Messagerie Maritime line, uh, the f- main French line, they're going to end up usually in uh, Marseille, perhaps La Havre. Uh, if they're leaving with Cunard, they're going to end up in a place like Liverpool. Uh, and oftentimes they spend several weeks in these transit ports and oftentimes in boarding houses at times run by also fellow Ottoman nationals. So Uh, it's an integrated operation in some ways from the people who get them to the coast to connections in Liverpool or Marseille. Right, exactly. And I have tantalizing hints of what's going on once they arrive in the United States. Uh, One of these major migration agents in Harput, whose name is Artin Harputlian, has a brother who is in New York, Miran, who seems to be collecting on the debts that his Art and Harputlian's migrant clients owe him. And so I'm trying to think, how does this work over vast stretches of time and space? And my going theory is that uh, Miran is also the primary conduit for remittances and for letters going back home. And so uh, he leverages that position as a conduit for information and for money back and forth between the United States and the Harput region to say, look, if you want that money to get back to mom and dad or to your beloved wife and children, you better make sure you're paying up your debts to the uh, Harputlian operation. So the people smugglers are also the mail carriers, are also the bankers, are also the loan sharks. It seems like there's a lot of things going on in this single operation. So these are highly coordinated operations, and I argue that um, we can draw parallels again uh, with the present. We see this kind of dynamic at work, this kind of high level of coordination across time and space at work in contemporary migrant smuggling rings. Uh, and of course, because the dynamic is driven by by the same kind of thing, by the efforts of states to criminalize and limit the ability of people to migrate openly. And so this drives this business underground. This functions in the past in much the same way as as in the present. On the note of this being an underground business, you're able to present in the book, I think, a pretty compelling vision of the scope of these operations. How hard was that to do, to find these people who are trying to evade the law, uh, who are moving people across vast distances, uh, moving money, moving letters, moving information, 
but they're trying to do it without being caught. Right. How did you catch them? In large part, it's because while they are trying to limit the degree to which they are visible to the state, at the same time, they do operate with a, a good degree of brazenness. Uh, so Artin Harputlian, for example, who's who's a major migrant smuggler, uh, as well as a, a elite banker, perhaps the most powerful banker in the Harput region uh, in the first decade of the 20th century, he has connections with local uh, and regional Ottoman bureaucrats. He feels that he can uh, essentially operate in the open. This makes what he's doing somewhat visible to the state. And then every once in a while, you get a report of people being arrested. There are plenty of reports of illicit activity, smuggling of people going back and forth in the port cities. And all of this, these kinds of snippets of detail of these moments where these networks become visible to the state by sort of collecting all of these documents organizing them, I began to see connections between what the state is seeing in Mersin uh, or Latakia and what they're seeing in the Harput region, and that these, in fact, are coordinated, that they're not separate from one another. One of the things that I think is really notable about what you've done is that you show the problem of referring to the state, even. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, the Ottoman state has banned Armenian migration, but on the other hand, Artin Harputlian is very much connected to the state. Mm -hmm. uh, he has police officers in his pay in, in all of these port cities. And so I think you show that very nicely the tensions between the port cities who are charged with stopping migration and then the provincial governors who in, in other ways are perhaps responsible for, for migration. And, and there are these different groups within the category of the state that, that we often use and that we have to use on some level to talk about these operations. But could you talk about the, about those tensions? Yeah, so I see I see in a sense the state working on two separate planes, this, this concept of the state. There's the state in the abstract, and it's the state in the abstract, for example, that issues this ban. So there's this ban that exists that that is certainly responsible for kind of setting up the, the, the boundaries and shaping the process of migration. Uh, so in that sense, it's useful to, to think about the state in that, that abstract term when we're thinking about the migration ban. But when we think about how this ban is being implemented on the ground, when we're thinking about who are the actors that make up these migration networks and who are the actors who are trying to put an end to these migration networks, then this concept of the state becomes much more complicated because it's not simply a kind of dialectical process between the state on one hand and migrants and smugglers on the other, but rather we have state actors who are critical parts of this migration smuggling apparatus, whether by taking bribes, looking the other way, or uh, actively involving themselves in selling internal passports that help facilitate the movement between the interior and the coast. Uh, and so in that way, I mean, the state or members of the state, people who are employed by the state's bureaucrats, police officers, gendarmerie, they are part and parcel of the functioning of these smuggling networks. And at the same time, of course, the task of implementing this ban is given to bureaucrat state officials at all levels of the Ottoman bureaucracy. And what is also revealed in these efforts to, to try to implement this ban for those who are actually working, not pro necessarily profiting from it, but are actually trying to implement this ban, these Ottoman officials aren't always on the same page with one another. So uh, when a large group of uh, migrants reaches the port city and a port city official complains 
that the interior, that his counterpart in the interior has allowed this group of people to freely migrate from the interior to the coast, despite knowing what they intend to migrate to, illegally to North America. He chides them, his co- counterparts in the interior, they respond by saying it's not our responsibility to, to, to crack down on what we think might be legitimate mobility. Uh, and so there are all of these tensions, disagreements within the Ottoman bureaucracy itself that lay bare the fact that when we think about the state, it's not a homogenous entity. Rather, it is composed of people at all levels who um, who don't always see eye to eye. Uh, and that reveals a much more complicated picture of what we're talking about when we're talking about state power. There's state power in the abstract, and then there's uh, how it's mediated on the ground. Another interesting point that you bring up is the comparison with a story that perhaps we're more familiar with of migration in the Eastern Mediterranean, which is that of people from the country that would become Lebanon. Mm-hmm. So we know about this from the work of Akram Khatar and others, this story of people from Mount Lebanon in Beirut going all over the world, West Africa, Argentina, mm-hmm. North America, the same Northeastern American towns that many Armenians are ending up in. Of course, he makes a, kind of a similar point about the difficulty of return or the transformative power of return. Mm-hmm. That, um, so I'm wondering, why is the Ottoman state treating that kind of migration differently? Or how do they negotiate that? Up until the late 1890s, um, migration from uh, large scale migration from Mount Lebanon, what will become you know, Lebanon and Syria is at least officially outlawed. You have to, any Ottoman subject has to get permission from the Ottoman state to be able to, to migrate abroad. That's the official policy dating back to the middle part of the 19th century. Large-scale migration emerges from Mount Lebanon and the kind of broader Lebanon-Syria region uh, around the same time in the early mid-1880s. Uh, Akram Khatr, I think, makes a, a convincing and interesting argument that links the emergence of large-scale labor migration from the region to the decline uh, of the silk industry there. And he also links that to the particular gendered composition of migration, migration from Lebanon Lebanon, Syria has a kind of a different gendered component. Uh, a lot more women, along with men, uh, are migrating in comparison to what you're seeing from the Harput region. Uh, but very early on in the late 1880s and early 1890s, it's clear the Ottoman state is having a great deal of difficulty preventing people from leaving. And the Ottoman state doesn't view uh, migration, illicit migration from this region, from the eastern Mediterranean, Lebanon and Syria, with the same degree of concern paranoia even, than they do Armenian migration from the Ottoman East. And as a result, by the mid-late 1890s, the Ottoman state makes the decision to effectively legalize uh, migration, overseas migration from Lebanon and Syria with the rider that anybody who is given permission to leave uh, has to agree to maintain their Ottoman nationality and um, not to engage in any kind of political, uh, suspect political activities while abroad. And the concern with maintaining Ottoman nationality is that they might return and then have a foreign passport and access to privileges. Right. The concern here is that these Ottoman subjects would illegally naturalize, whether as American citizens, Argentinian citizens, of course, in the Western Hemisphere, they have comparatively liberal uh, naturalization laws. And so from the perspective of the Ottoman state, this is a legitimate concern that Ottoman migrants will adopt the nationality of the places where they're migrating and then return in many of these places, the United States, first and foremost among them, uh, have 
capitulatory privileges. In the early 1840s, the United States becomes a signatory to these capitulatory treaties that gives its citizens extra legal rights within the Ottoman Empire. And uh, the Ottoman state is worried that those who naturalize, Ottoman subjects who naturalize as, as American citizens can return and claim those capitulatory privileges uh, and thus be free from prosecution under Ottoman law. So that's what they're trying to prevent by saying, you know, as long as you maintain your Ottoman subject status, don't come back as a naturalized citizen of the United States, then you're free to migrate. They give a special kind of passport to Lebanese that show that they have been given permission by the state to migrate. That never happens with Armenian migrants. There is no special provision given to Armenian migrants to be able to migrate freely as long as they didn't naturalize as American citizens. The perspective of the Ottoman state remains much more harsh toward Armenian migration than what you see uh, in the Lebanese case. Um, And in terms of another comparison, something you touch on in the book a little bit, is Assyrian migration. Right. So Armenians are not the only people leaving the, the Harput region and the Ottoman East more broadly. And uh, I think this is a significant issue to talk about. Why is my book focusing specifically on Armenian migrants when you do have uh, Muslims, when you do have uh, Assyrians who are also leaving often through the same channels, uh, illicit channels as Armenians are. It's not officially legal for Muslims and Assyrians to leave either, although the Ottoman state never views the migration of Assyrians or Muslims with the same degree of threat. Also, there becomes a question of when people return. Again, Ottoman policy toward migration, whether in the Armenian case, whether in the Lebanese case, uh, is driven first and foremost by what is the legal, social, political status going to be of those who return from these sojourns abroad. Uh, And this becomes a major issue in the 1890s and the first decade of the 20th century. And this is where you see a real difference between how the Ottoman state responds to Armenian migration as compared to Assyrian or Muslim migration from the same places. Uh, When Armenians return, uh, which they do in relatively large numbers, I estimate that in this period between 1888 and 1908, perhaps as many as 20% uh, of Armenian migrants return. That's either permanently or on a temporary basis. I don't really differentiate between those two forms of return. It is outlawed for Armenians after the early 1890s to return from illegal sojourns in the United States. And this is a huge issue in the United States, too. Something that really struck me in the book was that these issues were brought up in Grover Cleveland's inaugural address. Right, right. So in the in the mid-1890s, during the massacres that were taking place, the anti-Armenian massacres and violence of the mid-1890s, Armenians who were returning from sojourns in the United States, some of them bearing American passports, were arrested at port, oftentimes detained for long periods of time. This generated a major uh, diplomatic row between the United States and the Ottoman government. This is in the context in which you have these missionary reports appearing in the U.S. press talking about what's happening to Ottoman Armenians uh, in the East, news about violence, about pogroms taking place. And and again, because a lot of this information is coming from American missionaries, because it fits into kind of broader imagination about Middle East politics that looks at the Ottoman state as a a sort of despotic Islamic regime that punishes, that discriminates against non-Muslims, this fit within a kind of pre-existing narrative in the U.S. And so there's actually a a large-scale also press outcry uh, about the treatment of re- 
returning um, Armenian migrants in the mid-1890s. Uh, when those massacres end and that kind of dies down, the, the, the press reports die down, and, and as so often happens in American politics, when the press isn't talking about something uh, and it kind of falls off the radar, there's, there's a certain hist- uh, amnesia that exists, and, and, and the, the plight of Ottoman Armenians kind of sort of falls off the radar. It's in this context where Ottoman diplomats in the U.S. begin making arguments to the United States government about the right of the Ottoman state to bar Armenian migrants from returning to the Ottoman Empire, that the Ottoman state has a sovereign right to do so in the same way that the United States has a sovereign right to bar Chinese migrants. And that argument ends up working out to the favor of the Ottoman state in their treatment of uh, Armenian returnees. So so the Ottoman Empire is capitalizing on nativist xenophobic sentiment in the United States to make the case that they should be able to handle the Armenians the way that they are. Exactly right. And by the early, by the first decade of the 20th century, and, 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 and you know, I kind of draw a parallel between the assassination of William McKinley in 1901 and the attempted assassination of Sultan Abdul Hamid II uh, in 1905. The assassination in 1901 helps to further radicalize uh, American policy toward migration. Afterwards, you see a spate of of new uh, restrictionist laws in the United States that are looking to keep out people who have various forms of illness, but also trying to, to bar suspected anarchists from entering the United States. This is laying the groundwork for the restrictionist regime that will emerge in full force in the aftermath of World War one. At the same time, again, the, this, this assassination attempt on Sultan Abdul Hamid II in 1905 is what really triggers this large-scale deportation of Armenian returnees from the Ottoman East. And the only way that's possible, because again, many of these uh, Armenians have naturalized as American citizens while abroad, what allows the Ottoman state to to conduct this policy is that uh, in 1901, the, the American ambassador effectively in Constantinople issues a decree that says, that uh, U.S. diplomatic officials in the Ottoman Empire will no longer see as valid the citizenship of naturalized Armenian citizens who return, who return having masqueraded as Ottoman subjects, who don't declare their American citizenship status at port. Of course, if they do that, they risk being debarred from the Ottoman Empire. So in order to return, they have to uh, essentially come in as Ottoman subjects. By doing that, they're essentially forfeiting by the sort of State Department slash diplomatic diktat of forfeiting their naturalization. This is what allows the Ottoman state to carry out this process of deportation, especially in the aftermath of 1905. This policy of deportation raises several questions about who was targeted by this deportation policy. Uh, and there's a lot of confusion um, among uh, Ottoman officials on the ground about who this uh, deportation policy actually applies to. Well, what do we mean by Armenian? In Ottoman tradition, identity is understood first and foremost along a sectarian basis. So the term Ermeni first and foremost refers not to ethnic Armenians, but rather members of the Armenian Apostolic Church. So this deportation policy raises the question, what do we do with Armenian Catholics or Armenian Protestants who are not part of the Armenian or uh, millet or community, but are themselves ethnically Armenian? The Ottoman state responds, all Armenians, regardless of their sectarian identity, are to be subject to this deportation policy. So at least in the context of this deportation policy, Armenianness, Armenian identity is understood first and foremost, not as a sectarian one, but as an ethnic one. And that's a major change actually in Ottoman state thinking. The Ottoman state views Armenians and Armenianness as a very specific threat. It's not simply the fact that Armenians are non-Muslims. Rather, it's that Armenians pose a 
very particular threat to order, to the survival of the Ottoman state that other non-Muslim populations do not similarly pose, which is why this book is is about Armenian migration, because Armenian-ness, Armenian identity is understood as something different, as something uniquely dangerous by the Ottoman state. And it's why they treat both Armenian out-migration and return migration in very different ways. So of course, 1908 changes a lot of things in the Ottoman Empire. How does that affect these regulations on migration? The constant Constitutional Revolution of July 1908 really is a major turning point. And, and we're, we're starting to see that in Ottoman scholarship more broadly, that we have to look at 1908 as a transformative moment. In July 1908, Sultan Abdul Hamid II has his dictatorial powers stripped, and uh, the Constitution of 1876 is reinstated. And a significant part of the reinstatement of constitutional order is a commitment on the part of the new regime to making a firm break with the autocratic nature, uh, what they see as the kind of illegal autocratic nature of uh, Sultan Abdul Hamid II's reign, and instead creating a more liberal um, economic and political system in the Ottoman Empire. Part and parcel of that is ending most restrictions on mobility, including uh, removing the internal passport system or, or getting rid of the internal passport system that had existed uh, in various forms since the early 19th century. Uh, it also meant lifting almost all restrictions on both out-migration and return migration, applying to all Ottoman citizens uh, of the new constitutional regime, regardless of who they are. Again, getting back Back to this issue of how state power shapes the migration process. After 1908, when the ban on Armenian migration is lifted, now Armenians can freely migrate between the United States and the Ottoman East. And so what you see is the essentially the collapse of these smuggling networks. Now, no longer do Armenians have to, to migrate through these illicit channels. Uh, you also see the geography of migration expand greatly. So now that Armenians from elsewhere in the Ottoman East, from Van, from Mush, Bitlis, Sivas, can more easily migrate in large numbers. And so you see an expansion of the geographic scope of migration. And I should say, not just in the Ottoman East, but elsewhere in the Ottoman Empire, you see other Ottoman communities migrating in much larger numbers after 1908 but also larger numbers of people returning. It's now much safer to return uh, than it was before 1908. You don't have to worry about deportation if you're an Armenian returnee. You don't have to worry about the state trying to prevent you from re-entering the empire going back to your home community. That fundamentally transforms the nature of migration. But at the same time, it raises all new questions. First of all, as the Ottoman state is liberalizing its migration policies, the United States and other countries are beginning to engage and are beginning to strengthen their restrictionist policies on in-migration. Uh, and so you get reports in 1909-1910 uh, of large numbers of Ottoman migrants who are stranded in transit ports because they can't get permission to go on steamships to go on to the United States. Uh, so that becomes a major issue of discussion, both within the Ottoman bureaucracy and in the Ottoman parliament. And then as the Ottoman state gets plunged into these disastrous wars against Italy in 1911, against the Balkan states in 1912, uh, another question emerges of what to do with people who are migrating to a avoid conscription into the Ottoman army. Beginning in 1909, all Ottoman citizens, regardless of their religious background, are required to serve in the 
the Ottoman army. Uh, so you get large numbers of people who are migrating to avoid military service. And this also raises a number of questions too about how do we keep this commitment to a kind of liberal migration regime while at the same time avoiding or preventing people from migrating to avoid mandatory military conscription. And so this creates real tensions. Do we go back to an internal passport system? Do we start uh, reintroducing limitations on migration? Uh, and this is a debate that, that, uh, that the Ottoman state is engaged in until the beginning of World War I in 1915. But for the most part, until 1915, even after the 1913 coup brings this uh, much more authoritarian regime into power, these, these, um, this liberal migration policy remains in effect. And there's, of course, an irony there, which is that you said Armenians could return to the Ottoman Empire post-1908 without fear of deportation mm -hmm. because they didn't have that same kind of fear as they had in the past. But as you alluded to with 1915, there are going to be new kinds of unprecedentedly draconian controls of Armenian migration and deportation of Armenians that come. Right, exactly. So uh, with the coming of war, with the Ottoman involvement in World War One on the part of the Central Powers, much of the Ottoman steamship industry was dominated by French and British steamship lines. Uh, they are no longer servicing Ottoman ports as the Ottoman state gets involved in the war effort. And that effectively brings an end to large-scale migration from without the Ottoman Empire to elsewhere. Uh, and then, of course, the Ottoman state also, as World War I becomes a ballooning crisis, uh, is seeking, like other states, like France uh, and Britain are also doing the same things, preventing people from leaving to avoid military service. And these thousands of Armenians who return, in particular after 1908, uh, as well as the families uh, of Armenians who are in the United States. Of course, again, there are still large numbers of people who, um, you know, who have left their families back in the Ottoman East. Well, in 1915, of course, the uh, Ottoman state passes uh, the Tejir Kanunu, which is the sort of legal framework for the Armenian genocide. Uh, the Harput region is especially uh, hit hard by the genocidal process. The Harputlian family, for example, the Art and Harputlian and his family, who are the head of that uh, migrant smuggling network, as far as I can tell, he is, he is one of the early victims of the genocide. Leslie Davis, who is the U.S. consul in Harput during the genocide, who then later in the early 1920s, writes an account uh, of what he witnessed in 1915 and 1916, talks about large numbers of people coming to the consulate saying, we are American citizens, we have citizenship, can you protect us? And because that State Department policy from 1901 is still on the books, and even after 1908, returning to the Ottoman Empire, you had to do so as an Ottoman national. You couldn't do so claiming uh, foreign citizenship because, again, this policy is in place saying that if you return to the Ottoman Empire, essentially showing yourself as an Ottoman subject, you're to assume to have forfeited your Ottoman nationality that remains in place during the genocide of 1915 and 1916. And so he talks about in his book having to essentially say, no, there's nothing I can do for you to help you, um, you know, avoid deportation. And so uh, it becomes a very harrowing story because he knows what's happening. He knows what the fate of these individuals uh, will be. Uh, and yet uh, his hands are tied by American policy that grew out of this nativism and racism of the beginning of the 20th century. 19 15 marks a very, very grim ending point for the story of long-distance migration between the Harput region uh, and the United States as the family members, as returnees themselves, fall victim to this genocidal process. As we talked about a little bit earlier, talking about migration, people smuggling, 
it's sometimes hard to find traces of that. And you've chronicled in great breadth and depth large networks of migration. And it's a history of people who aren't there anymore. I wondered if you could read a passage that gestures to some of the remaining traces of, of this community today. Sure. For those who know where to look, however, traces of Armenian existence remain. In the heart of the city, this is the uh, modern-day city of Elazu, which is uh, in the Harput region, along a major thoroughfare sits a nondescript 10-story office building of the variety that exists in every Turkish city. A sign with the building's name, the Five Brothers Arcade, Besh Kardeşler Pasajı in Turkish, sits prominently above the entrance to a small cafe, flanked on one side by a pharmacy and on the other by a hair salon. It was on this spot more than 100 years ago that the Fabricatorian brothers, the region's most prominent silk manufacturers, built five identical connected row houses, one for the family of each brother. The wide, tree-lined boulevard in front of the marvelous edifice was evocative of the leafy suburbs of the American Northeast. The brothers' burgeoning manufacturing empire and their growing economic and political clout in the region was thanks in part to the flood of migrant dollars coming in from the United States. With the outbreak of World War I, the brothers' world would come crashing down around them. A few short years after building their triumphant row houses in the heart of the bustling provincial capital, the five brothers were rounded up and shot, along with many other prominent local Armenians, including their hated rivals, the Harputlians, The row houses would eventually be converted into a people's house, Halkevi, dedicated to inculcating local residents in the guiding principles of the newly established Republic of Turkey. Following the building's destruction decades later, the name of the building erected in its place would carry on the legacy of the five brothers, even as the memory of the local Armenian community of which they were a part was consciously erased. As a memento of what once stood there, a chandelier that had once adorned the main room of one of the row houses hangs proudly in the building's pharmacy. So David, I had one final question. For your PhD, you worked with Donald Quadert, one of the pioneers of Ottoman history in the United States. I wonder if you could talk about what it's like to publish this book, something that was influenced by Donald so deeply. I mean, he was somebody who took a chance on a, a relatively green and wet behind the ears 24-year-old graduate student in 2006. He was aware of my desire to work on the history of Ottoman Armenians in the Ottoman East in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and this was still a time in which those topics were in many places considered taboo, that Ottoman historians who wanted to have a career, who wanted to do this kind of work, should not do topics that connect to the Ottoman East or Ottoman Armenians or Ottoman Kurds. Donald never gave us that message. Uh, he was very encouraging of this project and he was very much encouraging of this project as it evolved. You know, it owes a great deal to his patience, to his willingness to his, encourage his students to, to take risks, to take on topics that may seem to be politically uncomfortable. And I think that the way that the field has transformed over the past 10, 15 years, and I hope this book is also a part of, uh, of the shift that's taken place in Ottoman history, owes a lot to him 
uh, and a lot to his encouragement of, of, of tackling topics that, that, that other historians often shied away from. The work is clearly a part of that transformation and it's clear that you've honored that commitment. David Gutman, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you again for having me. It's been a pleasure. Of course, please check out our website at ottomanhistorypodcast.com where you can find a bibliography of relevant works and link to David's book. Please also join us on Facebook where you can leave any comments or questions that you might have. That's it for this episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. Until next time, Take care.